4: Good morning and welcome to the independent republic of mike graham right here on talk radio it's the start of another week of excitement here in the republic and much could change in the next few days uh, somebody was caught climbing up the shard earlier on today uh within a throwing distance to be honest of the mini shard which is where we operate from in this studio uh strangely enough it turns out it wasn't jeremy hunt trying to gain attention to his uh, leadership can campaign uh in fact it was just some crazy person trying to scale a very tall building made of glass who knew the prime minister could recall sir tim darrock after the leak of sensitive memos about the Trump administration over the weekend. It's left everyone in London and Washington rather red-faced. Some MPs uh, are calling for treason and uh, all sorts of terrible things to be given out to anyone who leaked these particular documents. We'll be getting into that. Jeremy Corbyn could be ousted in a bloodless coup at the Labour Party as Panorama prepares a TV documentary that will reveal what everybody's known for a long time. There's an awful lot of feuding going on at the heart of the organisation and John McDonnell is more than likely to be behind it all. And Boris Johnson could well be crowned the new Prime Minister as Jeremy Hunt and his campaign head closer and closer to oblivion. He doesn't seem to be getting anywhere fast. Alternatively, of course, None of the above could happen at all. One thing is for certain, though, we have not moved any closer to leaving the European Union at all. 0344 499 We want to hear from all of you this morning because the Republic has been away for a couple of days. There's been an awful lot going on and an awful lot of you will want to have something to say about it. The Royals, of course, uh, had another little get-together at the weekend. Little baby Archie was christened in secret. Uh, but don't worry, because Meghan Markle was able to wear the nice £12,000 earrings she wore at the same wedding a little bit earlier on uh, that we paid for because uh, she wanted to have some kind of connection to the two events. I'll tell you the connection to the two events. There's a load more lies told uh, than there were the last time they had an event and it turns out we don't know who the godparents are, because that's another secret as well. 0344 Coming up, I'll be finding out why it's a good idea to play video games with my children, even if they don't want me to. So you might be having a good laugh later on, but I'm going to have a go at Minecraft, uh, which I've never done before in my life. Apparently, it's all about killing pigs uh, and making strange noises. Also, I'll be asking why nothing is apparently being done, even now, to stop illegal immigration. More illegal immigrants crossed the channel at the weekend. 43 of them apprehended uh, between the Uh, the, the coast towns of Dover and Deal and we'll be asking why sexual discrimination cases in the workplace seem to have gone up by nearly 70%. 0344 499 1000 is the number to call. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, when you know uh, that somebody has got it in for you, normally what happens is it's on the front page of one of the newspapers. And on the front page of the Daily Mail today, Labour civil war explodes. Gag on ex-staff as party braces for bombshell TV probe into anti-Semitism. John McDonnell tells the leader to back second Brexit poll basically asking for a second referendum. And Corbyn's allies are warned against a mass cull of MPs. It's all going horribly wrong at the heart of Labour. Uh, And Wes Streeting, who's a Member of Parliament, of course, for uh, the Labour Party. Uh, He's a a, a Member of Parliament for, uh, I can't remember which seat it is now, but I'll find it shortly. Uh, He's been speaking to Julie Hartley Brewer this morning, and she asked him why, Uh, in spite of all of this, he's decided to stay with the Labour Party.
1: I refuse to give ground to um, anti-Semites and their apologists and to be driven out of a political party that I think throughout its 100-year history has done fundamental good for our country. Um, I don't think that um, leaving the Labour Party, the the country's official opposition party, to that kind of conspiracy theorist hard-left politics is the right thing to do. Of course, the best course of action would be for Jeremy Corbyn to get a grip if he can't. Look, it doesn't... To be honest, Julian, uh, lots of people who support Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party um, are, you know, any time I criticise things, even where there are legitimate criticisms, and they're not interested. They know that I am never going to be president of the Jeremy Corbyn fan club. What I would say to decent minded colleagues on the left of the party, many of whom voted for Jeremy Corbyn twice, is they have a responsibility resting on their shoulders, actually, about how they think they can rescue the Labour Party from this quagmire. And sometimes that does involve having uncomfortable conversations with okay. your friends and telling them that things need to change or they need to go. And I really think that um, colleagues on the left of the party really need to think through their role now. We've already seen this happening on Europe. Some of Jeremy Corbyn's closest allies have been to see him in recent weeks to tell him that things can't go on like this. I would just hope okay. that Jeremy Corbyn now reflects and listen to those voices of his supporters, even if he won't listen to people like me.
4: Labour MP Wes Streeting there, who's a Member of Parliament for Ilford North. One of the things that he's saying he will do uh, is to breach any kind of um, non-disclosure agreement, breach any kind of gagging order which is being handed out to all Labour MPs, everyone who may or may not have already spoken to Panorama, who are doing a big investigation into Labour, as in the question mark, is Labour an anti-Semitic political party? That's the question that they're posing on Panorama. The show goes out on Wednesday night. The Labour Party, believe it or not, have hired a law firm that you may have heard of in the past. I'm certainly very familiar with them, called Carter Ruck. Now, this is a firm that normally is hired by very wealthy individuals to either gag newspapers from writing particular stories or uh, is hired by big companies to try and stop or sue any newspaper that's published a story that they don't like. The fact that the Labour Party has now hired a company by the name of Carter Ruck, which is what you might call a Rottweiler law firm, is quite remarkable. And West Streeting is saying, I have parliamentary privilege... Privilege. Uh, I'm allowed to say things in Parliament that I can't say outside of Parliament for fear, uh, perhaps, of being sued. But the Labour Party is supposed to be against non-disclosure agreements. they are going to be talking later about why it is possible uh, for the number of sexual discrimination cases to have risen by something like 70% in the workplace, partly because people fear uh, these non-disclosure agreements. People are worried that as a result of some sexual harassment, they are not uh, being properly given uh, the right uh, attitude by their bosses. They're not being promoted properly. They are not doing the things that they're supposed to do. The problem is, right, that the Labour Party is in danger here of being accused of rank hypocrisy, a massive Massive betrayal of what they're supposed to stand for. A massive betrayal of what they're supposed to be doing. The Labour Party are indeed all over the place. There is no doubt in my mind that John McDonnell, uh, who we have asked to interview on this show, uh, but who has unfortunately not acceded to our request, um, there is no doubt that John McDonnell is behind all of the the sort of rumoured moves against Jeremy Corbyn. He had to deny yesterday claims that he'd been trying to get two of Corbyn's closest aides sacked. Carrie Murphy, who's his chief of staff, and his chief of communications, Seamus Milne, former Guardian correspondent, former Guardian writer. The problem for all of these people is that they Have what can only be described as an ideological difference with one another. The Seamus Milnes of this world would like to see a kind of intellectual Marxism being passed into uh, Labour Party handbooks. He would like to see not only the return of the workers' control of the means of production, but would like to see anyone with any more money uh, than about £25,000 in the bank. Give it all away so that they can be using it to subsidise those who don't have as much money. It's a remarkable state of affairs. It's It's a remarkable state of affairs. It's a remarkable situation that we find ourselves in. And it's an important place that we find ourselves in as well because it's not good enough to simply say, well, don't worry, the Labour Party are not the party of government. Don't worry, the Labour Party are now the party of remaining in the European Union. Don't worry, the Labour Party are never going to get anywhere near Downing Street because we are a whisper away and a whisker away from any one of those three things from happening. Let's talk to John McTurnan now, uh, who is Tony Blair's former political secretary. He's also uh, advised political leaders around the world. Uh, he's got some very interesting things to say about the Labour Party and where it currently finds itself. John, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning. Thanks very much for uh, for joining us. I mean, it's not wrong to suggest, is it, that Labour is in the midst of what can only be described as a political crisis here?
0: It's an existential crisis. It's about uh, not whether Labour could form a government or not, it's whether Labour will survive yeah. uh, as a political party.
4: Yes. And why is it that they have suddenly come to this point, John? Because clearly we've seen, I suppose, what you might call the evolution, in my in my regard anyway, in in, in the wrong direction. It's a kind of evolution backwards of the Labour Party. They've gone from becoming modernised under Tony Blair when you were closely associated with them, into what they are now, which is a sort of a poisonous, very small-minded, backstabbing, sort of, you know, cliquey organisation where if you're with the leader, then they love you, and if you're not, they hate you and they want to kill you.
1: Yeah,
0: look, it's a kind of evolution, isn't it? It's backwards, yeah. uh, the opposite of evolution. Uh, and I think it goes back to the takeover uh, of the Labour Party by uh, Jeremy Corbyn. He, you know, he is a leader who's alien to the Labour Party's traditions. Um, he would have been an opponent of at Attlee, an opponent of Wilson, he was an opponent of Blair, Blairs, an opponent of Brown. Um, he comes from uh, a political uh, tradition which is quite anti-democratic, which is associated with the far left, and really... Uh, very few other uh, Labour parties around the world that ever even allowed him to be a member, let alone let become a leader. No. I think it, Because it all goes down to him. It's all to do with the leader. And I don't take all this accusing uh, the advisers of being the fault. The leader appoints the advisers. The leader decides to listen to the advisers. The man is from the far left, and he's destroying the Labour party because of
4: that. And he's destroying it from within. And I mean, we hear yeah. we hear so much about the difference between the Westminster Labour Party, which is by and large a Remain group of people, by and large a moderate group of people, with the membership, because what they have been good at is drumming up a, a very big number for the membership and people who are now paying money into the party, who all appear to be sort of more or less uh, in, the, in the guise of Jeremy Corbyn.
0: Well, yeah, that's the, the takeover was a mass membership takeover, and it was definitely... Facilitated by the rule changes that uh, Ed Miliband brought in, but I think the you know the, the, the fundamental thing is you're right. There's a, a big difference between MPs uh, in Westminster and the membership in the country. Although to be to be fair to the membership, the new members they are as appalled by uh, Jeremy Corbyn's position on Europe as uh, all of the MPs are. Uh, people are finding it very strange to see Jeremy Corbyn uh, wanting to leave uh, the European Union when you know nine out of ten Labour uh, voters and uh, nine out of ten Labour party members want to stay in Europe. So yeah. there's a bigger... Cri- I mean, there's a big crisis because, in the end, Jeremy wants his way. He wants. He's not a Democrat. He just wants to impose his will. Uh, and I think he he, he wants our exit. And... Um, not sure that's available, but... <laughs>
4: yeah, I mean, I was going to ask you, what do you think is actually at the heart of, of Jeremy Corbyn's politics now? Because for so many years, he was a kind of um, agitator from the back benches. He was a guy that could do really what he wanted uh, and, and, and nobody expected him to behave in a particular way. Now that he is the leader, he's not showing very many leadership qualities.
0: Yeah, look, I think you have to... Uh, you can easily understand Jeremy Corbyn's politics, which is... What does America want? He's against it. It doesn't really matter. Um, And it used to be, what's Russia, what's the Soviet Union for? Uh, And he'll be for it. And he was a bit confused for a bit, but he's now like, what's Putin want? I'm for that. Uh, What's America want? I'm against that. Mm, Um, It's a a very black, it's a black and white vision of the world. It's not one that's really uh, in tune with most British voters, I think.
4: No, I don't think it is. Would that explain then why his sudden conversion from an uh, anti-EU person to, you know, wanting to now remain in it?
0: Well, I think um, Jeremy probably doesn't really care whether he's Prime Minister or not. As you said, he likes being against things. I mean, if he became Prime Minister, he'd be the first one to organise a picket against himself. In his yes.
4: Own, well, his own I policy. mean, funny you should say that. I was actually reading a, a piece about him a couple of weeks ago uh, <laughs> in which he actually apparently demonstrated against something that he had in fact <laughs> voted for. And he was out yeah. there on the barricade saying how ridiculous yeah. it was, you know.
0: Yeah, but he's one. He's, he's he's he is one of nature's demonstrators, and I think. But I think the people around Jeremy, uh, like John McDonnell, definitely want to be empowered. They want to be empowered, to use that power for for a purpose to try and change uh, our economy into a socialist economy. Uh, and I mean, I mean socialist because they mean socialist, and they mean not capitalist and. By that, they mean not-profit-making, and we'll all pay the price if we ever try to run an economy that didn't turn a profit. And I think they're the ones who are putting the pressure on changing on Europe, because they see um, the chance of being in government slipping away from them, with Labour recording its lowest-ever numbers in an opinion poll just the other week.
4: Yes, and that is quite extraordinary. What do you make of them employing Carter Ruck? Uh, and revealing to the world that they've made people, or lots of people, sign non-disclosure agreements. I mean, it seems very anti-democratic. It seems very against what the Labour Party is supposed to stand for, doesn't it?
0: Well, there's a couple of things about it. But the first thing is, it's just really stupid. Well, I mean, yeah, that's all. You only, you only employ Carter Rock when you have something to cover up. Well, so why let people know that you think you've got something <laughs> to cover up? Well, exactly. I, I think it's, it's, a, it's, a kind of, it's a really bad, bad move. And I think the other thing is, the notion uh, that people who've spoken to Panorama haven't had their own legal advice, mm. haven't had their own legal protection, that's naivety. So it's kind of stupid and naive in equal proportion. Yes,
4: and 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 that's just the good bit, you know. I mean, the, then the rest of it is that, well, uh, people are now going to actually react against it. We've already heard from Wes Streeting that he's going to use parliamentary privilege, if he feels it necessary, to say whatever it is they don't want him to say anyway.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, you, you draw it... You, you, you basically, in a situation where something's going to happen, uh, you need to deal with it head-on, not in these devious ways. Mm. And the best way to deal with it head-on, to be honest, is um, uh, on the day of the Panorama programme, Jeremy Corbyn should make a major speech about why he's pro the European Union, why he's calling for a second referendum, why Labour will back remain, you know. Yeah. <laughs> change the conversation. Change the, change the conversation, the yeah, the
4: old dead cat scenario. But here's the other yeah. thing that I find extraordinary, um, is that this has been rumbling on for a very long time on this anti-Semitism row. Um, no matter who says that they're not anti-Semitic, there is still a, a sort of suspicion that there is a problem inside the party, which he has been unable to fix. And I can only assume that he's been unable to fix it because he doesn't want to fix it.
0: Yeah, he's unable to fix it because the people who have these views are his closest allies. Right. There's always been... Uh, a, a, a portion of people on the far left of politics have been anti-Semitic. A lot of the arguments, a lot of the memes, a lot of the language uh, that we've seen used inside the Labour Party actually traces itself back to Soviet communism in the 50s and their, their bout of anti-Semitism and attack on mm-hmm. Jewish, uh, Jewish Soviet citizens. I think that's it. Really, it's that it's you can you can try and give an innocent explanation to it. Uh, it just doesn't. It, it just doesn't hold water. I mean, yesterday. Um, when Andrew Marr said to uh, John McDonnell, "We do need a big apology, a proper apology from Jeremy," and John McDonald says, "Oh, but Jeremy's been to Auschwitz, right? As yeah. if, as if that—that uh, that means it's in, the, it's in the end, this is the argument from supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, right. which is the man's a saint, uh, his heart is pure." Well, how can you think bad things of him? The reason people think bad things of him is that he does bad things or he doesn't stop bad things happening. Right. And in the end, leadership is about imposing your uh, will on... And as, as you that, say, yeah. I
4: mean, this, this kind of image that he gives out of being a rather kind of, um, you know, sort of uncle-like figure for the for the master ranks of the mm-hmm. Labour parties, who all unite behind... You know, he's clearly a tetchy character. He doesn't like being interviewed. He doesn't like any journalist asking him any questions. He doesn't fancy answering. He doesn't look comfortable in front of a camera. He doesn't look comfortable at all, even when he's standing at the dispatch box. He just looks like a guy who wishes he could be anywhere else but at the top of the Labour Party.
0: Yeah, no, no. At the dispatch box, he he looks like a very unconfident uh, geography supply teacher facing a very, very bad rowdy class.
4: Yeah. Right. And, I mean, they're not very good, the Tories. It's not as if, you know, he's up against this, you know, magnificent USA women's football team all of a sudden. He's up against, yeah. he's up against Theresa May and her collection of, of, of idiots, basically. And, and, and now we're going to have Boris Johnson and his collection of idiots, you know, but yet they're still trailing. It's hard to believe.
0: Yeah, no, no. The Tories are tearing themselves apart. They're on the, coming up for the third leader since Jeremy was elected. And he can't land a punch on them. It's like, as if the worst government in history... Uh, Is facing the worst opposition in history, and the only people who are going to pay the price is the British people.
4: And you said at the start of this uh, conversation that this is an existential crisis for Labour. What has to happen, do you think, for Labour to survive all of this and and to even come anywhere close to winning a general election? Jeremy
0: has to go. Um, I don't think it's possible to come close to winning an election with Jeremy in power. People, uh, you know, the voters who were optimistic about him and the possibility offered uh, politics are now cynical because they've seen his position on Europe. Um, the voters uh, who should be being attracted by the Labour Party, moderate, decent, centrist voters, they're going for the Liberal Democrats. And if they're on the left, more on the left, they're going for the Greens because people can't vote for a party that's anti-Semitic. Mm. You know, there's only two parties in British history who've ever been investigated by the ECHR. One's the Labour Party. The other one is the BNP. Who could have imagined that the Labour Party put led into the same bracket yeah. as the BNP?
4: I know it's hard to believe, and I mean, as far as the the, the fight then goes, is it between Tom Watson and John McDonnell, um, those two factions, or where do you see it going?
0: Well, um, the funny thing is, uh, everybody in the end who oppose, who, who raised questions about uh, Jeremy Corbyn gets called a Blairite. Mm. Uh, uh, obviously, people like me are called Blairites. Then there was some. Um, well, they hate you guys well, more than, than they hate. The,
4: they hate you guys more than they hate the Tories, don't
0: they? Oh, they no, they do. They do. But then, but now John Macdonald, because he's been raising uh, questions about Jeremy's judgment, he's been called a Blairite. Um, <laughs> uh, Emily Thornberry silenced. Right. Angela Rayner silenced. Um, there's a very, very narrow band of ideological purity that you've got to uh, to be within it uh, before you can be allowed not to be a Blairite anymore. And that is the sign, ultimately. Uh, of a a leadership under siege, a leadership that doubts its own ability, a leadership that's scared that something big is going to happen to it. And uh, I think, I mean, they they probably in the end should be scared because there there has to be a challenge. Either either there's a challenge which will be brutal and bloody and divisive, or Labour will slump to a massive defeat and there'll be a challenge after the next elections. the question is, for the Labour MPs, is do you want to have a fight now? Uh, when there's a lot of you, do you want to have a fight when Boris Johnson's had a landslide victory?
4: Yeah, interesting times. John, thanks very much indeed for the time you've spent with us. John McTernan their former political secretary to Tony Blair. Very much a Blairite, right? very much part of what used to be called New Labour, but is now known as Old Labour. It's quite confusing. Old New Labour uh, is now old. Um, New Labour doesn't exist anymore. Uh, I don't know what you call this lot. Blue Labour is another title that people have used. But the Labour Party's finished, isn't it? Jeremy Corbyn has actually ruined the Labour Party. Him and his Marxist mates have effectively destroyed it from within. Well done, Jeremy. Congratulations. You couldn't even win against Theresa May. For God's sake. 0344 499 1000. Do we not deserve a better opposition than this? The
3: Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
4: Now, if I told you that one of the reasons people voted to leave the European Union was to strengthen our borders and to make sure that freedom of movement did not actually affect this country, because what we do know is that an extra 400,000 plus people have moved into Britain in the past sort of two years alone. London has now been boosted by another couple of hundred thousand. I think most of them are walking around the streets wherever I go, because I can't ever move anywhere without walking around people. And it seems to me that we are not doing anything really to curb the numbers of people coming from France to Britain every single day. day, And certainly every weekend, in dirigible boats uh, where they come somewhere close to Dover, get apprehended, brought to this country, processed and then get to stay. It's a ridiculous situation. Let's talk to Chris Hobbs, retired Metropolitan Police Officer, uh, a man who knows a thing or two about the borders as well. Chris, a very good morning to you. Yeah, morning Mike. Thanks very much for joining us. Um, I'm constantly surprised, and I suppose I shouldn't be, by the fact that this is still going on and we don't appear to have plugged the gap, uh, if you like, in our sort of uh, defences.
3: Well, I, I don't want to defend the Home Office because I don't, <clears throat> you know, I find them an, an amazingly incompetent outfit. Um, but they have actually, over the last sort of 18 months, acquired a number of coastal patrol boats and mm. smaller smaller craft to patrol sort of uh, along the coastline, as well as the cutters that we've had for many, many years. Right. So they, they have made a bit of an effort. Um, and, you know, you'd have to say that, it's perhaps not working as well as it should because a lot of these uh, migrants who are coming across in boats tend to surrender, don't they? Well, that's Rather the Rather than being intercepted, <laughs> they're um, they're putting their hands up or making a phone call or someone else is spotting them. Then the cutters or the patrol boats go out and bring them in and then they, of course, they go into the system. But they have made a bit more of an effort, you'd have to say. Um, but obviously... <laughs> um, perhaps I need to make a little bit more of one and maybe the French perhaps as well.
4: Well, the problem for me is is not that, you know, I'm not critical of individual sort of uh, activities, if you like, by the Home Office, but it's the policy itself which doesn't seem to discourage this from happening because what you want to do is you want to stop these people from trying to get here and sort of stop them before they set off, if you like, so that they realise there's no point. At the moment, as far as they're concerned, if they can get anywhere near Deal or Dover, they get apprehended, they can surrender if they wish or get arrested, they get brought aboard uh, a, a British ship, they get taken to a British port, they get put in a British detention centre and they get to stay.
3: Yeah, I mean, they don't. most of them won't be put in a detention centre. The detention centre space is like gold dust, so it tends to be people who are about to be kicked out for a very good reason or
4: going the other way
3: yeah exactly, right. or if there is something actually on the people that have been intercepted, for example if if they come up in some sort of terrorist database, then they will be detained. but most of them will be released they 'll be provided with accommodation, or they 'll go and stay with relatives. And then, of course, it's up to them, basically, whether they stay within the asylum system or whether perhaps they disappear into their own communities.
4: Mm. But certainly, I mean, I've spoken to MPs about this in the past, uh, and Charlie Elphick, who's the MP for Dover, he's under the impression very clearly that these people, once they are in the country, are are not sent back to the country of origin. Most of them are coming from Iran or Iraq, uh, where they appear to be able to tell us that they're under threat if they get sent back. So we don't send them back. So effectively, these people are coming here without fear or favour and knowing that they're going to be allowed in?
3: Well, a few months ago, the Home Secretary did reach an agreement with the French that people arriving here or intercepted would be sent back. And I read this morning that I think 40 have been sent back since January. Now, I suspect these 40 are the ones that possibly have been documented already somewhere in the EU because, you know, you give fingerprints and uh, biodata, photographs, etc., um, so they're probably the ones that are being sent back, but a lot of uh, people trying to get here won't actually register in the EU. They'll try and avoid it for precisely that reason. So I suspect the ones who are staying here are the ones that haven't been documented already somewhere within the EU.
4: Right. Okay. So, but what they certainly won't be is sent back to their country of origin, which, which is either Iran or Iraq. So, but see, that's a good thing as well. If they, know, if for example, because like, one of the questions I get asked a lot on this show is why can't we send them back to France? You know, what's the problem with doing that?
3: Yeah, well, that's what I think, when people heard about this agreement, that's what I think people thought would be happening. Um, But for some reason it's not. Uh, Some have been, some haven't been. There could be a variety of other reasons, perhaps, why they're not going to be sent back. The political asylum system is, as you can imagine with the Home Office, a very, very chaotic one. You know, it's a shambles. It's frequently been criticised by select committees and so on and so forth. So once you're in the system, then it's going to take you some considerable time to work your way Mm. through it. And As as I said, you've also got the option of uh, quite simply vanishing into your own communities if perhaps things you feel things aren't going your way.
4: Yes. And what about the people on the other side in France, for example? I mean, we know that it's not that easy um, to, for example, jump onto a lorry anymore, although it still happens from time to time. It's not that easy to smuggle yourself onto a ferry. Um, Where are these boats coming from and what, if anything, are the French doing about them leaving? Well, the French... Well, we all know the French, but there is some good cooperation that
3: goes on between the national crime agency and the French. And there have been arrests over there of trafficking networks of traffickers and even people who have been selling these rubber boots um, have been arrested as well. Mm. So there is some effort being made but, of course, as soon as you get rid of one lot of traffickers, another lot appear. Right. And the problem with these trafficking gangs, of course, is that they're often based somewhere in the heart of Europe, perhaps in Iran, Turkey, for example. So actually getting the people behind it, as opposed to their lieutenants and foot soldiers, right. is very, very difficult and requires a huge amount of international cooperation, which is there in part. you have to say perhaps isn't as good as it should be and who knows what will happen post-Brexit if we lose access to... Um, lots of European databases and uh, police organisations and so on and so forth. Yeah,
4: well, I mean, you say that, but I'm not quite sure how much use they are, really, because if they're coming now and they're coming because they know they're going to be allowed in, um, why would they stop coming just because supposedly it gets made illegal or more difficult for the for, for the authorities to track them? I, I just assume that because they know that they're dealing with a civilised country like the UK, they know that we won't do anything horrible to them, therefore they'll keep coming.
3: Well, they probably will. And the question is, I suppose, after Brexit, will they come in even greater numbers because maybe this lack of cooperation means that um, the way is clear for them on the European side. I'm not saying that will happen. Yeah. But it is certainly a concern. Because I mean, there's also,
4: presumably, there's another... Sorry to interrupt you. There's an argument as well, I presume, that if we are no longer part of the European Union, we can extradite them back to France or back to mainland Europe on the basis that we're not any longer part of the same grouping.
3: Well, we could, and, and then you, you're probably going to have, you could have this situation that we see occasionally, don't we, with people being put on airplanes, and they're basically like a tennis ball going backwards and forwards over the net, mm. which is the channel. So it, it could become a, a diplomatic nightmare with, with these refugees. And, and let's be honest, obviously, if people are fleeing say Iran, there may well be a very good reason why they're so doing. Um, and a lot of these people... Well, yeah, it's a
4: ghastly and horrible, repressive regime. I mean, there's no doubt about that. I think we can say that with, with fairly certain uh, certainty, can't we?
3: Well, yes, we can. Yes, that's that's absolutely right. Uh, and also, these people coming across by boat tend to be those at the higher end of the market.
4: Yeah, they're paying quite it's, a lot of money for it, aren't they?
3: Yes, they are. Yeah, it, it's thousands of pounds mm. that they're paying, you know, depending on the service, and part of the service is we will get you to where you want to go. If If you fail... And you're sent back, then we will try for you again. So it's all about marketing, really, and advertising, and the networks will get a good reputation.
4: Well, funnily enough, I mean one of the one of the tweets that Charlie Elfic put out over the weekend was about zodiac boats. I don't know how much you know about these, but these are the boats apparently that they use, which are obviously very hard wearing, kind of dirigible constructions where they can get four children, five adults and, and whoever's driving it, uh, into the boat. And it's a sort of a big dinghy, really. And and he's saying it's important to know what action's been taken by the French authorities to stop criminal gangs from acquiring these zodiacs.
3: Well, I would think that's probably very difficult because if you look at, even at our coastline, you look at the boat industry, and I spend a lot of time on the Isle of Wight, for example, mm. and, and you can find these craft are available, you know, yachts, all sorts of boating craft are available within these sort of coastal communities. And it, I think it will be very difficult here for us to stop those sort of sales. Yeah. So in in France, and I think some have been arrested where it's been proved they have been selling them to traffickers, but I think it's probably very difficult. It is tricky, isn't it?
4: I mean, it's a bit like fighting the drug problem, isn't it, where you get so many boats coming into the country because we are an island. I mean, you and I both know there's all sorts of parts of the south, there's all parts of of the north of England, of Scotland, which are pretty much uninhabited, where you could land a boat um, with about 500 kilos of cocaine on it and nobody would even see you.
3: Well, and that's the other concern with with traffickers, because there was an incident uh, a few weeks ago where... Um, a boat actually landed
4: Mm.
3: it's refugees migrants call them what you will off the coast of devon right so you could conceivably get a larger vessel move it along the south coast or up the east coast and find yourself uh, an undefended length of coastline Mm. drop them then into the into the rubber boats and get ashore without any problem whatsoever if you don't want to be detected but clearly, some of them are quite happy to be detected because... Well, yeah, because that's not, so that's not the
4: that's the, not the end of the road. It's just the beginning of a new road. But listen, Chris, thanks very much indeed. Uh, Chris Hobbs there, former uh, police officer, talking about the difficulty of policing an entire island's worth of coastline. It's impossible to do. So what we've got to do, surely, is to make it very clear to these people that they will not be allowed to stay in this country. They will not be allowed to seek refuge here. They will not be allowed, uh, if they get caught coming anywhere near the British coastline, to be brought to shore and given a place to live and given, you know, articles of clothing and given any kind of charity from us. I'm sorry. It's not really our place to do that. They might be living in Iran. It might be a horrible place. That's not our problem, is it? 0344 499 will take loads more of your calls. What are you going to do? To stop this from happening because it is still happening and it has not been stopped and it looks like it will go on for quite a considerable time into the future. We'll take your calls next to talk radio. More
3: blasted rhetoric from the Banana Republic for people who think capital punishment
1: isn't going nearly far enough. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on talk radio. <laughs>
4: This is the Independent Republican Mike Graham. Welcome back. 0344 499 1000 is the number. Now, if you're a parent and you're listening to this, uh, that means your kids are probably at school uh, or they might be on a week's work experience, which is what we're doing here uh, at Talk Radio this week. A couple of people are in uh, with us. One of them is actually my own son uh, who's sitting next to me. We're going to try and play a bit of Minecraft because apparently, according to a charity, we're encouraging parents to do something that may well go against their nature and have a go and get involved uh, in uh, internet gaming, basically, in the... UK, 81% of under-18s now regularly play online games, with a surge in all sorts of games like Fortnite and uh, Minecraft, which is the one I've got now in front of me. And we're killing uh, things here, I think. What are we killing? We're killing a creeper. Which a is creeper, right? We're killing a creeper. If it comes uh, to you, which off. is uh, which is great news. Uh, we were shooting pigs earlier on, which I don't know about that. Let's talk to Keith Stewart now, uh, video games writer for the Guardian. We've spoken to Keith many times before. He's a great advocate, I think, of all of this. Keith, a very good uh, morning to you. Welcome. Good morning, and well done for playing Minecraft. Well, I mean, you say, when I say playing, I mean, I'm sort of watching and trying to figure it all out. But I I must admit, as much as it sounds like a great idea, it's not, I mean, I, I would have to overcome all sorts of, you know, reasons why I don't want to play it because one, I'm not very good at it, and two, I don't really understand it.
2: Yeah, well, I think both of those things will will be things that you, you'll be able to overcome. It's like you know, video games, just like any skill or any um, endeavour. In that you will, as soon as you start playing, and especially if you're with someone knowledgeable like like your son yeah. seems to be, then you know you'll you'll get you'll you'll be able to understand the basics and the rules and how things work. So I think. You know, giving yourself just like giving yourself um, time to experience video games, is that first is that kind of first step sure. on the run to understanding them.
4: Well, we I mean, shouldn't. i be a bit worried. I might become a bit obsessed, though, and then i will be locked in my room for the rest of the time, and then nobody will be able to get me out.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, think, um, no. I think that's rather a large uh, progression there from uh, playing Minecraft for ten minutes to becoming uh, addicted. I think my- Minecraft is one of those games where um, what we call, you know with video games we call the sort of addictive or compulsive qualities uh, something called a compulsion loop right. which is which is um, uh, the way that video games kind of ensnare you and Minecraft is a very different sort of video game it doesn't have a lot of those loops that other games like yeah. Fortnite has it's a well, much we more set up, I mean, yeah, we,
4: we set it up as, as, as I got to set up my own world it's called MG's World which I quite liked you know being uh, relatively sort of self-important I thought that was quite good um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. we now appear to be killing people with an iron sword is that what we do? <laughs> we're killing zombies zombies okay that's good now Caroline Bunton from Internet Matters says uh, something about this and I think she's right that if your kids are sitting in his or her room for hours on end on their own I mean there's no harm in you going in and sitting with them and watching for a while even if you're not playing right?
2: Yeah, exactly. I think it's really important. I would, you know, as you said at the beginning of this, over 80% of uh, children are now playing online. And, they, you know, they do spend a lot of time. There's no... You know, we can be all nostalgic about our childhoods in the 70s and 80s. Now we're out on our bikes all day and that's all we did. Well,
4: that's because uh, that's all we could do.
2: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but now, you now the fact is that children are spending a lot of the time online. And you, you said there that they're online alone, but, but they're not. You know, the, the fact is lots of our children now meet their friends yes. in games. Yeah, sure. So... But I, I think, it, you know, as a parent, it's really important to understand what our children are doing and also to show interest, to yeah. show active interest in what our children like. And I, I think it's that's really important. So if you can spend like 10, 15 minutes getting to know and letting them explain Fortnite and Minecraft to you, it, put, it, it gives them a sort of a different relationship yeah. with you. In that they're, the, they're in control. They're the boss. Children aren't usually in control of their own lives. So... To to put yourself in that Mm. position where you're saying, okay, teach me about this. Right. That's really good. That's really good for them. It's a really positive
4: thing. Sure. And you said a really interesting thing to me once when we were talking a few months ago, and it was about how you know we really need to look differently at how the future is going to be, and and you know the idea that you kind of go, oh, you can only have this much screen time because you know that's bad for you. Actually, um, you know, screen time isn't in and of itself bad. It's what you're doing with the screen time, I suppose. And so, and what I think you said was that you know we have. Have to be prepared for the fact that our kids are going to be much more digitally aware and much more kind of user friendly if you like for all sorts of devices and so that's going to be their future i think
2: i think so yeah and I, you know I'm, I'm a massive advocate of, of all things in in moderation so we have to spend you know time outside as well but yeah i mean the fact is you know the children do lots of their socializing on that line now in in on social networks right. on you know t- tick and Twi- twitter and, and whatsapp and snapchat and um, and they spend a lot of their time communicating and being social online within games. So, yeah, this is part of their future. And, you know, as we move forward as an economy, you know, the, the digital economy is expanding at an ever greater rates. So they have to be able to understand... Digital interfaces,
4: user interfaces. I'm sorry, so, they just set fire to something. What was that? Okay. <laughs> you blew up a, uh, a skeleton. A skeleton? Yeah, it looked oh, like well, something out of Star Wars. That was quite exciting. interesting. Yeah, very
2: exciting. Yeah, but, and good, actually, the good thing about Minecraft is you're you're obviously playing on the on the survival mode. Yes. Out, outside very of good. Them. Yeah. You yes. are good, Keith. Uh, so, um, but uh, you don't have to. Like Minecraft has also got a creative mode, so you can yeah. actually just sit with your child and build a castle or build a mansion and and be un- and uh, be undaunted yeah. by being. Does, a, does it a matter?
4: Zombie? I mean, in your view, what the game's are, are, are sort of a aim is? Because if you're killing things, and is that necessarily worse than if you're creating things? Um, Not
2: always. I prefer games that have a creative component. I think that allows you, again, to kind of explore creativity with your child, I think is really, Mm. really important. I don't think... I'm not too worried about um, a cartoon-style violence video game, things like Fortnite, which is very kind of slapstick Mm. and silly. What I worry about more is younger children tend to progress without parental control. They will progress onto more militaristic games yes. like Call of Duty. because Which are say, a bit
4: more bloodthirsty, aren't they?
2: Exactly, yeah. And I think, again, that's one of the reasons why it's a really good idea to play video games with the children so you understand exactly what's happening in the world that they're playing in. So I would never let my children play Call of Duty, and I understand the difference between yeah. Call of Duty and Fortnite. So, and what another, about the yeah. age
4: ratings? Because a lot of people worry about those. I mean, for example, my younger son, 12 uh, years old, was playing uh, what he regarded as a, uh, a sort of a, a, a younger-rated Grand Theft Auto, because right. they put out a version which was a 12 or something like that, or a 15, um, but not an 18. And that's a bit cheeky, isn't it?
2: well yeah i mean i think we, you do really have to look at the age ratings and the the peggy age rating system in europe is really really good and really robust and it actually puts a, a rating of 16 on almost all online multiplayer games because you do have the capacity to speak to strangers right. um But, yeah, I think you you do have to be really careful. The the system is robust and it works, and and as a a parent, you can go on sites like askaboutgames.com and they will tell you what's in the video games and whether it's suitable or not. Um, I'm not sure the the GTA version... that, you're, that this person was playing because Grand Theft Auto is an 18th certificate yeah. and there is no child's version of it.
4: There's so. a lot of noise going on in the background here. What are we doing here? We blow it. Uh, these are what are called creepers. Which creepers, blow yeah. blow up when they... They break. seem to be in the water. Oh, I died. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> it's all good. Is that game can, over then? You can respawn. Oh, I'm going to respawn. Okay, you respawn, but you, you drop you all of your... If only life was that simple, Keith. <laughs> <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. But listen, great, great to talk to you, and um, you know, I guess if you're a parent you just kind of go in and say can I join in or something, do you? Because I mean I, I, there'll be some kids who will say, for God's sake, you know, last thing I want is my parents hanging about in this same game that I'm in.
2: Yes, definitely. If your kids see Fortnite as a hangout, they don't want their parents showing right. up. Um, but, you know, in which case you can go and play it for five minutes while they're not there. But I think there's something really positive about playing with your Children, because it's a world that they see it as part of their world. Yeah. If, and, if, and if you're interested in their world, it means you're Interested in them, and sure. I think it opens up an avenue to talk about other things. You know, okay. I, I, I play Fortnite with my children, and I talk about what they're doing in
4: school, and right. um, so it's, it's stealth parenting. So it just gets you in, yes, yeah, stealth parenting. I like yeah. it, sounds good. All right, Keith, <laughs> thank you very much indeed. Uh, I'm going to carry on with this uh, Minecraft for a little while longer and see how long I can survive in the pool of death. Uh, or whatever it is, spawns, skeletons, killing uh, uh, all sorts of things. It's quite good fun, actually. I'm still not any really good at it, though. Um, 0344 499 1000 is the number. Thank goodness my son is here to talk me through it.
1: <laughs> Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
4: So if you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.